Mission Log, a Roddenberry's Star Trek podcast. Episode 246. Dark Page. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, really digging into its metaconscious to see what makes it tick, or, in some cases, what makes it stop ticking. This week, Dark Page, the one where Deanna learns more than she ever expected to learn about her sister, like the fact that she had a sister. I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first... But first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us, because you want to do that, don't you? Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. You would be more in keeping with the episode, John, if I said, no, 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 don't get in touch with us, don't get in touch with us, please get in touch with us. Just use your mind. <laughs> That's one yeah. way. Or if you want to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. i uh, got a few guest stars this week, John. So I'm guessing uh, there's at least a tiny bit of trivia. Mm, I'll see what I can do for you and for our listeners. Trivia for today's episode, Dark Page. Well, it was written by Hillary J. Bader, and we've seen two other stories so far that Hillary has contributed, and both of them with psychological undertones. First, we had The Loss, in which Deanna is dealing with losing her powers, and then Hero Worship. I'm sure you remember that one in which Data helps a boy, young Timothy, who's dealing with the death of his sole remaining parent by emulating Data. Now, this story for Dark Page had been kicking around the next-gen production office for a very long time. And you know how we've talked before about how just not having a script ready sometimes? The production office will just go back and grab one that hadn't worked out before and try to tool it into something that will work well. Such is the case with this one. And it went through many Many changes until it hit the air, uh, most notably the psychic trauma um, when they're trying to work that out. That was visited upon at various times, Dr. Crusher, Jordi LaForge and Deanna herself until they landed on Loxana Troy. And uh, Hillary will be back for more contributions to both Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And uh, our old friend Rene Echeverria gave us the script, uh, its final polish, and he was uncredited in this episode. Now, Dark Page was directed by Les Landau. This is Les's penultimate contribution to Next Gen. He started way back at the beginning with Encounter at Farpoint, and he will carry on with the spinoff series as well. Now, we do have a couple of deleted scenes, if you're watching the Blu-ray along with us, uh, both at the very end of the show in Act 5. So you have just a short bit in the Arboretum, a slightly longer clip in which Mr. Troy has a line. He says, the current was too strong, which reveals more of what happened to Kestra. That's a tough line to pull off when it's a, it's a pond. Yes, Yes, yeah, that, that that would be part of the reason to cut that out of the show. <laughs> yes, uh, also for time and, well, thematically, it might just be kind of a little too much information there. Um, and then we have a slightly longer version uh, at the very 
end scene in Deanna's quarters, the scene would actually begin with Loaxana telling Deanna that uh, she told her father to never speak of Kestra and, and tragically saying what a horrible thing to ask someone to do, but he went along with it. Um, and it puts a little more fine point on the repressed memory and the fact that Loaxana may have died with a secret. Um, Let's see what else in terms of production. Uh, you had a real wolf on set for some of those shots, though mostly it was done with split screen and compositing. And uh, Marina Sirtis did her own stunt jumping out of the door at the end of the corridor into space. Well, not really into space. It was more on a uh, on a big inflated pad that she could fall safely onto. And, you know, since this is a theme in this episode, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about repressed memory. And interestingly enough, you know, in last week's episode, Phantasm, we had Sigmund Freud as a prominent character. And um, I wanted to read up a little bit on repressed memory. And as I sometimes do when something like this comes up, I go to skeptic.com, the skeptics dictionary. And uh, there's a quote there from John Hockman. And he says, in Freud's theory of repression, the mind automatically banishes traumatic events from memory to prevent overwhelming anxiety. Freud further theorized that repressed memories cause neurosis, which could be cured if the memories were made conscious. While all this is taught in introductory psychology courses and has been taken by novelists and screenwriters to be a truism, Freud's repression theory has never been verified by rigorous scientific proof. So if you read on with the rest of the article, it's very interesting. They talk about how uh, it's pretty commonly known that people will consciously repress memories um, and uh, very much the, the case here. Uh, but the, the sort of popular Hollywood version of unconsciously repressed memories, not not really a thing that is uh, uh, readily accepted. So if you want to read more about that, then you can take a look. Just look up repressed memories and you can look that up at the Skeptics Dictionary. So let's talk about guest stars because you asked so kindly. Uh, let's talk about somebody who is not here. Carol Stroykin. Uh, he was not available, so there is no Mr. Hom in this episode, even though he is mentioned by name. And let's see, we have Emic Bryan as Commander Troy. Now, we've actually seen Bryan before in just a bit part as Hickman in Identity Crisis. And in addition to his TV guest and voice work, he also had a small role in Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West. And uh, this episode is the only time that we will see Deanna's father on screen. Now, also coming back for more Trek in this episode, we have Norman Large as Mequis. Did you recognize him? Well, he was Proconsul Neral in Unification 1 and Unification 2. And when we jump over to Deep Space Nine, we will see a few more appearances from him there. Oh, wait, and he's still not done. He's got a guest shot on Voyager 2. And in addition, you may have caught him in, let's see, Veronica Mars and My PD Blue, and he had a small role in the movie Pretty Woman. And we have Kirsten Dunst as Hedril. Okay, okay. Um, kind of hard to do trivia here for Kirsten Dunst since, well, she is a big-time movie star. This role was pretty early in her career, uh, preceded by a role in The Bonfire of the Vanities and voice work in Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service, just to name a couple. And after Star Trek, well, uh, I loved her in Interview with the Vampire. And honestly, you have seen her in so much, it's kind of pointless to rehash her resume here. 
I will give a shout out to an underappreciated little movie, though, that I very much like. Uh, she played Marion Davies in Peter Bogdanovich's 2001 film, The Cat's Meow, which was right up my alley uh, as a drama about what may have happened on William Randolph Hearst's yacht in 1924 when Thomas Entz was killed. And look, you've seen Dunst in Spider-Man about a hundred times, so go give that movie a shot the next time, okay? And of course, we have Majel Barrett back as Loxana, and this is the last time we will see her on Next Gen, though not the last time we will see Loxana. Stay tuned. Once again, it is Bring Your Mother to Work Day. Whether Deanna wants to or not. Prologue. Meet the Cairn, a very interesting alien race. They're telepathic, but working to learn spoken language. And who better to help them make the transition from their image-based telepathy to the spoken word? Well, you could probably think of a lot of people, and then somewhere after you've exhausted that list and just wanted to mess with Captain Picard, you'd settle on Loxana Troy. She's meeting and greeting and introducing the Karen around, in particular a little girl named Hedril. She, like her father Mequis, uses a vocal enhancer to help interact with others. Loxana seems distracted, though, exhausted, and she's asking about Deanna. When Deanna arrives, she is introduced to Mequis and is embarrassed to learn that her mother has already telepathically let him know that she needs a husband. Act 1. Not cool, Mom. Deanna is not happy about Loaxana meddling in her personal life. Again. The argument is cut short and Loaxana has another spell of exhaustion. Seems like a headache, but very intense. She doesn't seem fine, but says she's fine. And Deanna goes to her office to find Maquis. He apologizes for the awkwardness the night before, but says there's a bit of a language barrier... The Karen are learning for the first time to speak with someone who isn't like them, and Loaxana happens to be that person. She shared a telepathic image of Deanna with Mequis, and he's intrigued because he says Loaxana keeps a part of herself hidden. The Karen don't, seemingly can't do that. Their minds are completely open to each other. Weird concept for the Karen, privacy isn't even a thing. But Deanna just smiles and says, yeah, that's the way she and humans work. They value honesty, but also privacy. Later in 10 Forward, Diana is sharing with Riker about how Luwaxana hasn't really been herself, and then boy does he see it in action for himself. In burst Luwaxana, screaming at Riker about how he should stay away from her daughter and how Diana would be married now if it weren't for him. Time for a trip to sickbay. Luwaxana is exhausted and a little low on a neurotransmitter used in telepathy. She'll have to cool it for a while. No more telepathy with the Cairn, but Deanna can step in and help them with their verbal communication. A little later in the Arboretum, Mequis is having trouble with some abstract concepts like poetry, heaven. Waxana shoots him a telepathic explanation, something she is not supposed to do, the tour continues, and Hedril accidentally falls into the pond, but at that moment, Loaxana passes out cold, prompting an emergency call to sickbay. Act 2. Yep, Loaxana is out, unconscious, 
Nobody is totally sure why, but Mequis has had the most contact with her lately. He doesn't have the words, but he sends a telepathic image to Deanna to help her understand. It's painful. Waxana is experiencing some kind of psychic trauma from her metaconscious. It's not just the thought she keeps private. It's a breakdown of those traumas playing havoc with her conscious mind. At least that's the best Deanna can do to explain this uniquely Beta Z problem to Captain Picard and Dr. Crusher. Crusher would like to run some psychological tests, but in the meantime, Deanna tries to telepathically reach her mother's mind. All she can hear is a cry for help. Sleeping near her in sickbay that night, Deanna awakens to find Maquis standing in the dark, watching over Loaxana. Act 3. Yeah, that was creepy. But Maquis assures the others that he's just trying to help. If he can't do it properly, maybe Deanna can. He sends her a telepathic message that, essentially, Loaxana is trapped in her metaconscious mind, with her psyche collapsing in on itself. The only real way they can make sense of it is if Deanna enters Waxana's metaconscious, and Maquise will be the one to serve as a telepathic link to make it happen. Think of it sort of like a Vulcan mind meld relay race. So what is running around in Waxana's metaconscious? Basically a bunch of stuff trying to keep Deanna out. A wolf, a very stern image of Captain Picard, and all of it shot with that disorienting fisheye lens look. And then Deanna stumbles into a room and finds a man wearing an old-style uniform, the Monster Maroon, for those in the know. It's her father. Well, a dream image of him. Deanna doesn't recognize the place near Lake Elnar, where they used to live on Beta Zed. She doesn't recognize the toys, but she does recognize the song her father used to sing to put her to sleep. He wants her to stay, to give Loaxana some space. But this isn't real either. Then Hedril shows up in the dream vision, but a very angry Loaxana chases Deanna away. Act 4. So is Hedril somehow a key to the mystery? Only one way to find out, Deanna talks to her, in a waking state, about what's been going on with Loaxana. All the child knows is that she makes Loaxana sad, and Loaxana told her so. But there's not any more detail than that. This leaves everyone else with more questions now than they started out with. Loaxana's probably experiencing something brought on by trauma, but they don't know what, and they don't know why her mind would be so defensive to letting Deanna in. They might have some clue in her personal journals, which Mr. Hom will transmit from Beta Z. Loaxana's condition is getting worse, and now Deanna is preparing for what may mean losing her forever. She's sorting through some of Loxana's personal effects when she's visited by Picard. There are so many loose ends and no real evidence for the psychic trauma they hope to understand. Even the journals they receive weren't any help. Picard suggests they start at the very beginning and have a look. What's weird is that there's a seven-year gap between Loxana's wedding and Deanna's birth. There are no journal entries because Loxana deleted them. It makes no sense, and the only way to try to learn why is for Deanna to enter her mother's mind again. Act 5. There's the wolf again, and there's Hedril, but she's not Hedril? She doesn't look alien this time, and she says that's not her name. Following Loaxana's cries for help, Deanna finds herself in the Arboretum, this time confronted by an image of her mother. She begs her daughter to go away, to leave her alone. Deanna persists, though, 
asking what it was that caused this pain. What was it that got deleted from her journals? Then the vision changes. There's Diana's father, and there's Hedril with a dog, but Hedril answers to another name, Kestra. There's a baby near them, too. The baby is Diana. Kestra asks if she can go play with the dog near the water at Lake Elnar, but Loaxana says no. A moment later, something in the dog's mood changes. It's distracted by something, and that grabs Kestra's attention. Loaxana is beside herself with grief. Deanna pushes more and more for her mother to explain what's going on. All those years ago, they lost sight of their daughter, Deanna's older sister, for a split second when she ran off to chase the dog. She blames herself for an accident, the one that led to Kestra's death. Deanna tells her mother that it's far more important to celebrate what was good and joyous about Kestra's life. As for Deanna, she just learned about a sister she never knew, and she wants to celebrate her life. Here in the Metaconscious, Deanna tells her mother to talk to Kestra, and Loaxana does, apologizing, and Kestra, now looking nothing like Hedril, says goodbye. Waking up on the sickbay beds, holding hands, Deanna and Waxana later look over an image of Deanna's father, holding her as a baby, with Kestra standing by their side. Mr. Hom had saved it, just in case. Deanna asks her mother to tell her everything about her big sister. The End Do you think there are birds in the Arboretum? Oh... Sorry, oh. I don't want to bring up a whole puppy thing. Uh, I don't, see, I, but, you just you just said you said puppy, and now I know I did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. because when they were in the arboretum, I heard birds chirping, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure it wasn't here. Yeah. And so I found myself wondering, like, do they have real live birds in the arboretum, mm-hmm. or are there like hologram birds in the arboretum, or are they playing a tape of birds like they did in that you know animated series version of the holodeck, mm-hmm. the Practical Joker? Yeah, the Practical Joker. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm thinking. All right, I'm gonna say that these are see. Unlike a classroom with a bunch of uh, replicator puppies, where this is like, hey kids, mm-hmm. it's puppy day. Don't ask where they are again. <laughs> um, I'm gonna right. say that in the arboretum, they really they want to have a complete ecosystem. You want to have birds, and you want to have earthworms, and you want to have bees, and you want to have all of that. So you have the real arboretum experience. <laughs> Yeah, no, my my guess is um my guess is a tape. Either that or hologram birds. Hmm. Because real birds would make a mess. And I don't know if you've noticed the arboretum, extremely clean. Very clean. Ridiculously clean. Very clean. But but you have not clean. But you have real grass and you got real trees and you got real flowers. And you have to have creatures to pollinate those <laughs> things and Oh no you don't. Okay. It's the twenty fourth century. They've learned to do that themselves now. Oh man. Um I haven't I have another question. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Cairn have never had telepathy with someone who wasn't Cairn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Loxana was the first person to teach them to speak. Mm -hmm. How do we know they want to be in the Federation? (laughs) (laughs) And are we sure they all want to be in the Federation or even most of them? I mean, does, does, what's his name? I've already forgotten. Maquise. Yeah. Does Maquis even speak for the Cairn? Oh. And, and I mean, he might because he's yeah. the only one who can speak for crying out loud. Him and the other like three people with him. Well, but I'm trying to figure out how do they even know they want to be in the Federation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do we, we know, know for that matter? Yeah. We, we've got buy in from two. 
But Marquise and Hedrill, I'm just going to say that she <laughs> was on daughter, board. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, there are two others there with them. Yeah. They don't speak. Right. You know, which I don't know if that's, you know, we're trying to save on the uh, on the production cost this week. Yes. Or if they just <laughs> haven't learned to speak yet. Look, how convenient that we killed two birds with one stone. Two holographic birds. Yeah. Oh, see, killing birds, now you're... <laughs> Please just go on. Just go on. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to put a moratorium on the Mr. Wolf joke. Um, I was done with that before. I'm definitely <laughs> done with it now. There are lots of holdovers from last week. We'll talk about a couple more later, but I think one is, is that Michael Dorn's only time in the whole episode? Uh, yeah. Yeah. More funny comedy jokes. Cause that's all he was there for last week uh-huh. too. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but, uh, there's a table in the quarters that's being used by Maquise and he has got quite the vegetable collection in there. Um, it's like there's a farmer's market on the Enterprise, maybe a whole other arboretum, and they're just growing vegetables like crazy. It, it looked good. It looked really good. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> wow. You noticed the food on the screen. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. Yes, I do. And I could get down on that with a space <laughs> fork. I'm just telling you. Um, uh, something serious here. Marina is great in so much of this episode. Um, that scene with her father, though, she is playing every level of that moment and it's pretty magnificent because it is it's one thing for an actor to be in the moment and to be able to convey to the audience what they're feeling in that moment it's another thing to see an actor who is in a moment and trying to hold back the emotions of that moment because she's trying to fight with what she wants to do uh, it's terrific. It's such a good scene and such a good scene for her. Ditto with uh, the scene at the end when she's talking to her mother. I think she's really strong in that scene. And that scene that she has with Picard when she's going through Loxana's personal effects. We always expect Picard to be good in a scene. And he pretty much just has one motivation in that scene. She's got so much going on in her head at that moment. And there are moments like that that I can watch over and over again and say, yes, she's feeling this. She's feeling this. She's trying to let on this part of the emotion, but she's trying to hide this part of the emotion. It's really strong stuff. Um, By the way, why is Loaxana traveling with all those weird things in her suitcase? I, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I was actually kind of curious because originally I thought maybe Mr. Holmes sent them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I realized he just transmitted the journal, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Did he, did he, oh, well, no, there's an interesting question. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. okay. Can you transmit like, oh, and here's our personal effects. So I'm going to scan those and I'll send them and you can print them out in the catalog store. And then you can also look through that. Sure. Sure. Cause this is like, a, this is like a box of stuff that she keeps by her bedside. So yeah. maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know. That's a really, because that is kind of weird, especially because she doesn't doesn't have, um, you know, Mr. Home there to carry every single thing that she's ever packed for. Right. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Kind of odd. Uh, speaking of Mr. Home, uh, logs or a personal journal or whatever, it, it's all in the 24th century stuff that people have access to and can be copied and can be transmitted. No problem. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that feels great. Yeah. I'm going to say, first of all, that, uh, well, no, wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm going to backtrack what I was about to say. I was going to say that Loaxana probably would have a password on that. But now I'm going to say Loaxana probably would have forgotten her password and therefore not had a password on it. Okay. 
she's not dumb. Why do you think she would forget her password? Maybe. Oh, no. Honestly, Mr. Home would have the password. Oh, yes, of course. He does take care of everything for her with the exception. He manages that stuff. Yeah. Right. With the exception of talking, Mm -hmm. he takes care of everything for her. So he he would actually have that. Yeah. Because even if she does remember the password, she would be unconscious or she is unconscious at this point. And yet Deanna can get into it. Right. Right. And so can Picard. Yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, it would have been great if he's like, oh, let's skip to the parts about me. <laughs> and then and then yeah. let's figure out the mystery. Because is she really into me or does she just do that every time she comes on the ship to make me uncomfortable? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, look, just reading anybody's journal in which you might appear, just probably not a good idea. Just no matter <laughs> what. No matter what. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, look, and, and it's so exciting. We love it. When Star Trek connects the threads, because uh, Data, in, in one scene, they're in the uh, uh, conference room there, and he chimes in about dream analysis because he was literally just doing that in the last episode. He's so casual about yes. it, like, you know, I've recently been doing this. Yes, we know you did it seven <laughs> days ago. Like really recently, yes. really recently been doing that. Yeah, this would be another one of the holdovers that I was talking about. So mm-hmm. you got uh, Mr. Wolf just being there for comedy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Data just remembering his whole dream analysis thing. And then we move over to the production side mm-hmm. where, you know, somebody's like, didn't we just use the fisheye lens last week? And somebody else is like, look, we rented the fisheye lens. We're using the fisheye <laughs> lens. Okay. You really want to do the steady cam again? Look, we rented the steady cam. We're going to use the steady cam. Phantasms. Dark page. With all of the jumping into the minds of others, I am ready for a Star Trek Nightmare on Elm Street crossover. There's a couple of themes in this episode that reminded me of other episodes. And no, I'm not just talking about phantasms. Because we we just had data talking about dreaming and dream imagery and and literally like asking the audience, did you watch last week? Please keep up. Um, But there's a couple of other things. I I like the way that this episode plays with language. We don't get too deeply into that. And I read somewhere that uh, Rene, when he did the polish on the script, he kind of toned down some of the humor that they had found with Maquise not finding the right words which I thought could be a lot of fun because he's just learning spoken language. Um, but I actually thought about Darmok um, because that, that was an episode we, we talked about maybe how realistic or not realistic it was that you would have a, a culture built up entirely on these metaphors. And could you really do that? Could you really carry on a conversation like that? But regardless, it was an exploration about how we use language and, I thought it was a neat idea that the Karen only speak in telepathic images, which is very cool. Again, maybe not totally realistic, but we we don't have a baseline to compare that to, to say that it's realistic or not. Um, I thought that the way they describe it in the show was an interesting way to show us the limitation of spoken language. Which I, I thought was great, because that, that that's sort of a central theme of literature, is how how spoken language, how the written word is limited in trying to express exactly what you want to express. Now, I do think that the Karen could run into some problems. Like if you're trying to, you know, say order pants that fit you, you might need to take measurements and not just send a mental picture because that, that might also be misinterpreted 
in some ways, but um, but I, I just thought it was. I thought it was a neat idea. I don't know about Karen Society, but you send a picture of yourself without pants here in this, you know, yeah, planet. Yeah, people sometimes get a little testy. Yeah, well, <laughs> not that I would know. Not <laughs> that I would know. Well, no, me neither. I hear. Okay, I've been on the internet, John. Clear. I, I yes. read, you know, that people don't like that sort of thing. That's what I read. Um, <laughs> it might have been kind of interesting, actually, if uh, if they had done. OK, first of all, I'm glad they didn't do the comedy because we said last week the comedy did not belong in that episode. It way yeah. does not belong in this episode. Yep. It yep. absolutely doesn't. Unless you're like just a stellar comedian. Honestly, what I felt like this episode needed was a B plot. And mm-hmm. but the problem mm-hmm. is, if you had had all the comedy in the B plot, which is what we did last week, that still didn't work. Right. Because yeah. the, the B yeah. plot, I guess was, you know, Picard and his, you know, dumb Admiral's picnic thing. Right. Which is where most of your comedy was. Right. It might have been interesting, though, to have him speak in imagery. Mm, because, mm-hmm. I mean, mostly, because I, I get what you're saying about the idea of Darmok. Yeah. But mostly what you get is him going, ah, what's the word? It's, um, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Rhymes, rhymes with. Okay, rhymes right. with. Okay, <laughs> what does it rhyme with? I can't think of that word either. You know what I mean? I didn't right. feel like, I mean, I like the idea, though. I mean, the closest he did come was when he said there was a what, a dark place. Yes. Is that what he yes. said in her mind? That's yeah. an interesting idea, which I will say certainly opened up a few possibilities. I honestly thought we were going to be dealing with a brain tumor. I thought we were going to be dealing with cancer or something or some sort of debilitating something or other. I mean, not oh, I mean, like something medical, not something, you know, where she was just pushing it aside. Uh, oddly enough, so did Dr. Crusher, because her, her first fallback, which is the right thing to do, is to say, well, we need to look for a physiological answer to this. Right. You know, and and immediately, like, well, okay, we didn't find anything, so <laughs> on to plan B, yes. When you're a hammer, everything's a place to put a hypo. Mm, right. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the part? And this is what I was joking about in the very beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of the part where Loxana is both screaming for help and trying to keep Deanna out? I mean, literally yeah. screaming for help, not just like, oh, it seems like someone should help her. But yeah. like, well, as soon as Deanna goes into her mind, she's like, help me. And then she's throwing everything. Now you got dire wolves in there. You got Deanna's dead dad. You got mm-hmm. just like everything that she can, everything short of a phaser uh, to, to stop Deanna from coming at her. Well, I have a question for you. Okay. Uh, ha- have you known people in your life mm-hmm. who have told you they don't want help, they don't want help, go away, back off, and they really, really want help? Well, yeah, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago. I think it was um, when Jordy was upset about the death of his mother in Interface. I believe the mm-hmm. name of the episode was "Don't mm-hmm. Don't Stop Me Now." I'm on a roll. No, that's good. When, <laughs> when Jordy yeah. stopped by Data's quarters, and Data's like, "Do you want to talk about your mom?" And Jordy's like, "No." And Data says, "Really?" Because it seems like you might want to talk about your mom. And Jordy says, "No." And Data's like, "Fine, let's talk about the weather." And Jordy's like, "Dude, try." Mm-hmm. And it really mm-hmm. annoyed me then. I mean, yes, I, I understand there are people who do that. Yeah. When we get to inside someone's mind, though, especially something that she's been burying for close to 30 years, if I did the math right in this episode. Yeah. I, I would think either she's not saying, help me. Like, maybe she's saying, help me and not throwing up the defenses, but the defenses are all still there. Or she's not saying, help me and just throwing up defenses. Because this really just seemed like a total mixed message thing. I mean, because look, it's so weird to me that you said at the beginning of this episode that eh, this was going to be a you know 
psychic trauma that happened to somebody and we didn't really know who. Mm-hmm. I mean, this actually informs a lot about the way Loxana is. Oh, I just mm-hmm. want to be married. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just want you to be married. I just want everybody to just, like, just, just live in my whirlwind because I'm in a whirlwind because this terrible thing happened 30 years ago and I can't deal with it. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, but you know, if the coin had come up a different way, it could have been Crusher. <laughs> And it's like, oh, well, then we then we know nothing about Loxana at that point. Yeah. In the end, it has to be Loxana. And, and I'm glad that they chose Loxana. But back to your initial question here, I, I, I totally buy that about the kind of fractured messages of her mind. Because if we go with the idea of a conscious and an unconscious, where in this case, as we call it in the conceit of the show, the metaconscious, right? the very idea that there is a voice that tells somebody on the outside, go away, stay away, get away from me. But the voice on the inside is saying, I really need help. I really need help. Um, I, I've been around it. I've seen it. And I, I know what that feels like. And it must be awful. Um and for this to kind of be the opposite of that, for Deanna to be confronted or at least hearing the part in the distance saying, I need help, I need help, I need help. But then seeing right in front of her the part that's saying, get away, um, I, that played as painfully realistic to me. Um, so I actually really bought it. I Yeah. I guess my only problem with it is once we're actually to the metaconscious level. I kind of wish we had only had Waxana crying for help once we're inside, but then these mm-hmm. are defenses that she has built that can't come down. The problem mm-hmm. is when she chases Deanna away, I think that's honestly it, because I could have talked myself into this is all just stuff that's happening because it's been happening for 30 years. Yeah. But yeah. when she comes running at Deanna telling her to go away and they're in her brain at that point. That that to me is where it becomes problematic. If you had thrown up like a wall of fire or or like rushing water around um, Hedril or, mm-hmm. or something like that, basically anything but Loxana running at Deanna at that point, then I might have a I might have a completely different feeling about everything that happened in her mind. But the you know go away wait a minute kind of thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always personally found that to be just sort of manipulative. And I'm not a huge fan, so I, w- I would have checked out of her brain and said, all right, well, you know, call me when you actually want to talk. Yeah, well, but maybe that informs something about how her brain works and <laughs> that manipulative nature. I mean, seriously, because that that's that's the terrible part of it. Yeah. Did you say her brain? Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought you said maybe that informs how my brain works. No, thought, no, no, well, no. I'm okay. saying her brain. The, the manipulative nature of it is what is so terrible about it in real life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Um, so anyway, uh, well, let's, uh, since you brought up the, the positive aspect here of what's going on with Waxana and that it is her story in this, um, I, I like that level of realism here in their relationship. Um, it, it's... <laughs> It's not quite as acute as when the audience was watching Sarek in his old age, mm-hmm. um, but there's still something uh, about the emotional vulnerability going on here and seeing Deanna deal with the the state that her mother is in. Now, the difference is at the end of this episode, we kind of get to wrap it up and say, well, she's okay now. <laughs> she, she's dealt with it and we move on, you know, but but there is still something that is different about this Loaxana than all the Loaxana that we've gotten before, where 
Deanna sort of cluing in like, oh, okay, I actually have to face the possibility that she will be gone and, and deal with all of these other memories. So I, I like the idea that they, they kind of drove home that a little bit. Um, and I like the idea of the metaconscious. Uh, they describe it in the show as a filter for psychic trauma. Um, it, it's a cool idea. It also sounds like something that needs to be purged once in a while, which apparently they do or do not to some level of success. Um, the, the tragic thing here in this episode is Loxana being stuck in her metaconscious. And I wish I knew more about the real world psychological counterpart that, that keeps people locked into patterns of trauma hmm. because they aren't just sort of pulling this out of a vacuum to create this for this science fiction character. They're, you know, they're actually trying to say something about psychology here. And, uh, Deanna has this line that she says to her mother, you can't hold it back. It's killing you literally in the episode, you know? Um, and going back again to what you were saying about character and what we learn about Loaxana, the fact that she deleted her own journal entries Mm-hmm. It says so much about the character that we know. We came down really hard on the Waxana, and I think for good reason, given what we were given in Next Gen for so long. Uh, but th- that character that we know, the annoying, bigger-than-life caricature who demands all the attention of the room when she enters, she's manufacturing her image. And, and in this case, we get that she's manufacturing her past as well to fit that image. It's a fascinating thing, and without sounding like a broken record, I hope, from the last several weeks, I I wish we had kind of known that tidbit before, because it really helps give some depth and and texture to this person that we've met. I'm trying to figure out how to address something that you said a minute ago. Okay. The thing that keeps her locked in a pattern of trauma she's not really locked in a pattern of trauma, right? She's locked in a pattern of what has worked for her to this point. Hmm. And, and I, I, I go back to, uh, time squared or I go back to, uh, some of the 12 step stuff. And I know there are people who question whether or not the 12 step stuff is, you know, psychologically valuable or not. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, the definition of insanity is say the 12 step things is doing the same thing, um, repeatedly expecting a different result. Right. Okay, so go the other way. What has worked for Loxana? She comes into the room, she's loud, she's brash, she you know throws people off their game either by telling them stuff about themselves because she's probing their minds or by saying, you think I'm so sexy and I think you're so sexy, right? And this has just let her keep, <laughs> people don't want to deal with her, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how this is working. I, I guess the question that I have now is why is it breaking? Is it just because Hedril looks so much like Kestra or is it, is it because uh, 30 years is the shelf life on that kind of uh, denial? I mean, I, I wish I knew what it was that why it broke this time, unless the only reason it broke this time is because, well, we had this script <laughs> and we needed yeah, it to well, be somebody. No, I mean, I, I think that we're, we're, we're meant to take that it is Kestra. It's the image of Kestra, but also her interaction with Kestra that 
that makes these memories surface that she has tried for so long to repress. Mm-hmm. And, and again, and a conscious thing that she has tried to do to repress this stuff. So that's what I mean by the pattern. It's just like, I'm going to push this down, push this down, push this down. And on top of that, I'm going to create this image for myself yeah. that is so over the top, so superficial and maybe it rankles people, but so what? The more I rankle people, the more I'm not having to be that sort of hurt person who has real tragedy in her life and 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 other things that she has to deal with. So, yeah, yeah that's I, I, it. I guess it doesn't truly matter how that came out. And maybe, like you said, maybe 30 years is about as long as you can do that or, or just simply that she is older and and maybe it is harder to keep track of of how long she has had to deal with that but regardless yeah it, that that is the 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 purpose of the script in this case yeah. <laughs> say well we've reached the point where she can no longer deal with it i think i think the one thing and forgive me i don't mean to get so caught on it i don't think it's so much a pattern of trauma i think it might be a pattern of i don't know if it's fear of having to deal with the trauma or if it's shame in, in yeah, the event yeah. i mean she's not she's not constantly living in in fear of this thing, nor is she trading on the tragedy, right? I mean, no, 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 no. I think I, when you talk about a pattern of trauma, then it's somebody who says, well, you know, I was beaten when I was four. And I'm not saying that that can't actually affect you. Right, Certainly right. it can. But if, if all you ever do into your 30s or 40s is talk about, well, you know, I was beaten when I was four. Okay, but it's been 26 years. I mean, and that's not to right. say it's not to say it doesn't affect you. But I mean, there are things that we can do to move past. And what's really interesting is that's what Deanna is really forcing Loxana to do at the end. Now, I am sort of sorry, as you say, that, okay, well, now she's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, because really, I, I was actually sort of horrified. There was another episode, or maybe it was this one, and I'm just, like, thinking there was another one. That, huh. Anytime that, that like, they, they force somebody in a 60-minute show or a 48-minute show to confront something, and then they lived happily ever after, Man, I mean, she had a scab about the size of her arm that Deanna just picked. Right. <laughs> and now right. it's like yeah. she's at least going to need Bactine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. probably actually a lot of bandages and tending and maybe a bit of rest. But we're given to understand that, you know, once you have the aha moment um, that everything's fine. And once you have the aha moment, it's likely followed by, oh, expletive deleted. With Waxana's deepest, darkest secret exposed, it is time to see what we can learn from Dark Page. As the numbers get bigger, the chances get smaller. We're on our way to the last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Uh, but we're not there yet, and sometimes I'm glad about that, and other weeks, oh well. This episode that we're doing is Dark Page, and this is the part of the show where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings, and see whether the given episode uh, holds up, and what the messages were, and all that fun stuff. I say fun. (laughs) Hey, John. (laughs) Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? 
So I, I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush here. I, I don't mean to um, uh, to put words in your mouth, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say this, though. I, generally speaking, I think you have a little more of a problem with Star Trek than I do when Star Trek veers away from ideas and into the, you know, kind of soap opera slash personal drama type stories. Um I, I feel like what I want the longer Star Trek goes on is I want to feel a little tighter bond with the characters. And then generally speaking, those stories, when they're done well, they, they do that for me. You know, I always go back to family as being that that kind of pinnacle story where things changed. And it was a story not on a spaceship, but in a vineyard where we just learned about Picard and his family demons. Um this is one time that I am really not having the personal drama. <laughs> um, it's really too bad that this comes right after Phantasms uh, because they play out in such a similar way. And I, I hate to say it, but I would rather watch Deanna deal with nightmares than with Data. Deanna has emotions and Marina is wonderful at playing them. So it seems like if you're going to do a dark psychological drama, then Deanna, as played by Marina, is really the ideal person to do that. Um, This episode also feels like it was written around the end goal and not just to tell a great story. Um, Meaning that they figured, okay, well, we got to get to this point where we have some reveal And that brings the person who's dealing with this trauma out of their trauma. Whereas, you know, and I think that that's evidenced by the fact that they were just jumping from character to character and developing what the story would be. You know, it didn't really matter that somebody said, hey, I've got a great story to tell about this character. It was just like, here's the thing that happens. So let's just fill in all the steps that come before it. Um, Now, I'm really glad that what we ended up with is that we got more depth out of Loxana. Like I said, now in seeing this, I can't imagine this story being told about anybody else. Um, And there is another thing that I do like, aside from Marina's acting, that when you rewatch the episode, the little clues about what's going on from the beginning are very nicely played. Some a little too much, but the clues are there in the reactions that the characters are having, mostly in the reactions that uh, Loaxana, Majel, is having. Um, This is also a psychologically sophisticated episode. I will absolutely give it that. It just happens to be an episode that honestly could have been on any other show. And this time around, (laughs) that is not a compliment when I say that. You know, I, I like to think that Star Trek is a stretchy enough format that if something is believable, then you could park it on any other show. Hmm. But in this case, that's kind of the downfall is that, yeah, it could really kind of be on any other show. So I'm afraid it doesn't hold up. I think the the acting from character to character is very inconsistent. Again, Marina is the standout here. Um, I really wish it had been better. Um, I don't know. Am I am I off base? What do you think? <laughs> No, I don't think so. I mean, there's there are honestly things I like about this episode a lot. Um, I've made three lists, actually. Uh, what's wrong with this episode? What's right about this episode? And then what are the problems with this episode? Which I know sounds like the same thing as what's wrong with it. Okay. But I don't think so. So just stick with me. All right, I'll go with it. Um, what's wrong with the episode? Uh, Deanna is the ship's counselor, but it takes Jean-Luc Picard to ask whether Loxana keeps a journal. 
And then Data says his recent study of dream analysis has taught him that sometimes images in the mind uh, represent other things, which, correct me if I'm wrong, was taught to him by Troy. Mm, yes, you would be right. All right. So we have the worst case of gumbification ever in that one scene. <laughs> and now, right. now maybe you could write it off because it's her mom, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is happening to her mother, and so maybe she's kind of losing it, except she doesn't seem to be losing it. She seems fine. She's worried about her mother. She's still got all of her faculties. And then, you know, Picard's like, oh, oh, I just thought of the first thing you should have thought of. And then, you know, Data's like, oh, and I just thought of the second thing you should have thought of. Hmm. And she's like, oh, hey, that's right. Hey, hey, that's also right. You know, I mean, so that was that was sort of problematic for me. That sets up some of the issues I have with the episode. As yeah. far as what's right, I really like the misdirect with Hedrill. I thought we were going to end up with like a like an imaginary friend thing or like the, the Billy Moomy episode of the Twilight Zone. You mm -hmm. know, I really thought she was doing something terrible. And I believe that right up until Act 4. Yeah. Well, you, you know me. I mean, I'm pretty much a fan. Anytime you have a kid on screen, that, that kid should be creepy and evil. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Which she, but she, there was not even a hint of her being creepy and evil, which is how I thought we were going to have an amazing payoff. Right. But no, right. it turns out she seemed sickeningly sweet. And she was. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things I really like about this, this is very reminiscent of The Enemy Within, as far as I'm concerned. Not in the way it's portrayed, but in the message. Star Trek mm -hmm. seems to be saying that we have to deal with the things about ourselves, in this case, the events of the past, uh, that we do not like. Otherwise, they will drive us mad. That is what happened in The Enemy Within. Kirk had two parts of himself. He was those two parts of himself that he hated. The one who couldn't decide what to do and was kind of logy, and the one that was far too... Um, aggro. Aggro is good. Aggressive mm -hmm. is another good, another good word. Um, terrible might even be okay, but you need both of those things. You have to deal with both of those things. You have to bring them together. You are the sum of your parts. A huge part of Loxana's life was the fact that she lost a child so many years ago, but she's not dealt with it. And this, this says you, you gotta, I mean, you just have to, you don't have to like it, but you have to accept it as part of yourself because trying to just carve it out will drive you insane. Yeah. The inability to talk about problems in the past, lost. This was reminiscent to me of the bonding and not yes. the part where Jeremy Astor lost his mother, uh, but the scene between Wes and Beverly. When she can't deal with his questions, with his sorrow, she holds him, right? Yeah. When Waxana can't deal with her own, uh, she puts up barriers. She pushes Deanna away. She tries not to make everything better for everyone, but to make everything the way she thinks things should be for everyone, which kind of goes back to the 12 step stuff I was talking about a minute ago. This will make everything fine. Well, no, it's not making everything fine. Okay. What if I do it louder? <laughs> well, <laughs> right. no. Okay. Well, what if I wear something more revealing? Okay. Still no. <laughs> okay. As far as the problems, as you said, this episode suffers from coming the week after phantasms, which was not a great episode though. This episode kind of made me miss it, <laughs> uh, which may be a terrible thing to say. But, I mean, we decided last week that Phantasms, because it gave us so much stuff to chew on, seemed to kind of work. Sure, sure. The issues addressed in this episode were better dealt with in The Enemy Within, I think, and they were better dealt with in The Bonding. And it's almost like they freeze up. And I don't know if it's they freeze up with Waxana or they freeze up with Majel. Yeah. Because... Over the course of seven seasons, I think they've written one good episode for Loxana. This is net. Mm -hmm. And that means they've only written one good one for Majel. And what's weird is we know they can write depth for Majel. Um, excuse me. We know they can write depth for Loxana because we've seen Half a Life. Yeah. 
the one with Timison, where she falls in love with the guy, but he's 60 and he's going to go kill himself because that his society says he has to do. And I right. felt pain in that episode. And, and, and that was, I think, partly because Waxana felt pain and partly because Majel acted it. Yeah. Now, I mean, you did also have David Ogden Steers or Styers, whichever. You did also have Charles Emerson Winchester on there crying <laughs> his eyes out and doing just an absolutely beautiful job. And Michelle Forbes shows up for the first time and she does an amazing job. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just, I mean, I think the script probably suffers from the fact that they didn't know who was going to have the trauma. And so they're like, oh, well, just, you know, what's Majel doing this week? Or we haven't seen Waxana in a while. They don't know which one of those things it is. So all that sounds like I'm really going to castigate the episode, right? But you and I had such a fun conversation around it yeah. that I am almost willing to forgive it. I can't because I know that the two times that I watched the episode or three times or however many it was going into it. Dude, I nearly fell asleep the last time I watched this episode and I wasn't that tired. I mean, it's a yeah. bad episode. It is a bad episode with a bunch of... <sighs> if you're willing to address it, a bunch of really amazing stuff to address, a bunch of important stuff to address. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I didn't lose a kid when I was 30, you know, or 30 years ago. But there are any number of things that this could stand in for if you're somebody who's been like, oh, no, I'm not going to deal with that. Going to give that 30 years and we'll see how I feel. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of important stuff that happens in this episode. But boy, is it terrible. I would say the only way uh, to to really watch this episode and and get anything out of it is is do a podcast with somebody else for about five years mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. then talk about yeah. this episode because then you might get something. I don't know. I like that uh, idea. Yeah, like that, idea that, that was a whole bunch of stuff there. I think I did the whole does it hold up? What are the messages? I think you already said it didn't hold up as far as you're concerned. Were there other messages that you found? No, it's just, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't hold up, but unfortunately, it's an episode that has good stuff in it, or fortunately, it's a good episode that has good stuff in it, primarily Marina, and also the fact that they're they're trying to bite off these big ideas and these big themes, and like I said, something that is psychologically sophisticated to to tackle. I mean, look, look at when we were doing uh, the animated series, and there's an episode right there at 8.30 in the morning on Saturdays in which eight-year-old Spock has to deal with the death of his pet. You know, no, it, it is something... No, see, you always say that, and I say it's worse because he actually has to deal with whether or not to put his pet down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 His sailot did not get hit by a shuttlecraft. No, it's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there's Star Trek biting off something big to chew on for the, the audience to deal with. So I, I have some respect for this episode. It's just not a good episode. Yeah. And, and that's really too bad. So messages. Yeah. Like I said, there's a lot to chew on here. Um, the, there is a message here about how to deal with tragedy. We we get that just hit right over our heads at the end. And again, delivered beautifully um, in which Deanna is telling Waxana that you have to celebrate life rather than lose oneself in grief. That, that is absolutely a, a wonderful and beautiful message. Um, sometimes easier for somebody to say yeah. And for somebody to accept and truly take to heart, but that, that doesn't mean that it's not worth saying. Um, and then the, the thing for Loaxana is that you have to deal with your demons and you have to forgive yourself. You know, the, this is a, a, a massive lesson for her. She's not at fault. Um, it's a horrible thing that happened. And of course, as Deanna says to her, this is the worst thing that can happen to a parent. No question about it. 
but you have to be able to find it within yourself to forgive yourself. Um, so the messages are there. They hold up as far as I'm concerned. They're valuable as far as I'm concerned. Uh, did I skip over anything there? Well, about the only thing I can think that you left out, John, is Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. You good? We good? I think we're good. I think we're good. All right. All right. Let me do that again then. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. We talk often about the stuff that Roddenberry is into. The best place to find the stuff that Roddenberry is into is Roddenberry.com. Now, if you want to know about podcasts specifically, there are three and a growing number, but right now it stands at three as we record this. Uh, three podcasts that uh, Roddenberry's into, Women at Warp, Priority One, and, of course, Mission Log. The place to find out about all of those is podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show, patreon.com slash mission log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week attached. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I knew something was wrong with Waxana. In the first 15 seconds of the show, in that whole time, she did not hit on Captain Picard once. End transmission.